Welcome to the podcast of Small Differences with Ian and Otis. Enjoying your coffee? Uh, I am, yeah. I was uh, traveling last week, so still still in recovery mode from that. Uh, yeah, uh, I, I elected to get Ian a Pete's pour over, which I think a lot of people wouldn't. I don't know. What do you? What do you? What's your take? Like your Starbucks versus Pete's versus everything else? Um, I will generally take Pete's over Starbucks, uh, but I also usually will choose the the like anything else that's expensive option. <laughs> uh, coffee is one of those <laughs> things that I splurge on, maybe kind of irrationally. For for those of you who don't know know him. Like the anything that is expensive is not the usual option that Ian goes with uh, on most goods. That that is true. We'll 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 say coffee is coffee uh, is one of my little luxuries, uh, and so if it's the choice between spending two dollars and seven dollars on a cup of on on a cup of coffee, I will generally choose seven dollars. I think I I I. Uh, I like both expensive and cheap coffee. Like I, I definitely don't have like, um, like I'm not like someone who will turn my nose up at Nescafe, but I definitely also enjoy like a really well done, carefully done pour over. And I love the vacuum packed blue bottle thing mm. that costs so much money <laughs> <laughs> for me to make it at home. Yeah. So, so, so I will say the singular exception to this, uh, is, is, when I'm at home in Toronto, uh, then I will then I will basically almost exclusively drink Tim Hortons. That your Canadian I, just overwhelms you. Yeah, I I, it, I like felt like I just had to throw that in there because like I don't know. There's like something about being in Canada that basically says I have to do Tim Hortons right now. And this is telling me that you're suppressing your Canadianness more than you should while you dwell in the United States. Uh, well, I mean, if I if I could get Tim Hortons here, uh, I probably would have, but I can't. But, but it's more than I mean, it's more than that, right? Like you're just saying that like you have this Canadian nature that it needs to express itself in in buying Tim Hortons yeah. every time you go back. Yeah, I mean, it generally expresses itself in that and in watching as much hockey as I can while I'm here. Yes, gotcha. Um, let's see. Uh, let's let's get into some some feedback. Okay, so we have some fo- some feedback from Mike in Concord. Let's see. He says, first, the first one I don't quite understand, so I assume it's a personal aside towards Ian. Um, those who draw log loft graphs should not throw stones. Mike, you are such a troll. <laughs> um, so yeah, Mike. Mike is is. Uh, uh, so we 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 know Mike. Thank you for the feedback. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Mike is referencing uh, the fact that uh, I one of one of my sort of go to heuristics uh, is to uh, check if something is showing power law behavior. Um, uh, I, I found like, like approaching, uh, some, uh, like there are some kinds of analysis that are, that it's valuable to sort of approach that way because, uh, you can see variations, uh, uh, you know, running across multiple orders of magnitude, uh, uh, a lot easier. Um, the people who don't like it, 
uh, of which Mike is one of those practitioners. Mm. Uh, and I'm not going to speak for him in particular, but but uh, many of the people who don't like it will uh, will will argue that uh, some of the nuance gets hidden. Uh, and so you can uh, if you if you if you're looking at things uh, in 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 log log and the interesting variation is 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 across a a much smaller slice but that's the variation that matters you're gonna miss it mm. uh, and and there are arguments kind of going in both directions um, I found at, at least for me that there there's a certain class of problems where the tail ends up mattering a lot uh, and if the tail matters a lot uh, and you uh, and you're looking at it on a on on uh, uh, on a linear plot it, it like then it can be easy to miss um, but anyway you take it you, you, okay, he's, so you, you he's kind of trolling me there you guys are having a, <laughs> extending an argument out from previous time I'm guessing yeah um, maybe we should we should follow up on that on a, on yeah, a future the, episode we, uh, I would say like there there are definitely two defined camps in terms of like whether you should be using this or not uh, especially like uh, I think there's a sore spot around like a bunch of physicists who are basically trying to shove everything into power laws uh, and to be clear like they are probably wrong well <laughs> but <laughs> I'm guessing he's I'm just gonna speak for Mike for a second but I know that economists do a lot of log log regressions because that yields what you call an elasticity it's like a percentage change mm -hmm. in output compared yeah. to a change percentage change in price so this may be one of those instances and I've run into this with with Mike before where like he gets really tired of sloppy like analysis in econ and then sees it out in the wild in data science, like sees a similar ta uh, methodology out in the wild in data science. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'll I'll say one more thing about this. The reason that that I found uh, working in log log like uh, to be a a, a useful heuristic uh, is basically because you you get a lot of problems in in the commercial world. Uh, or the natural world, or the real world, or however you want to put it, um, that uh, that don't have a natural scale to them, mm -hmm. um, and so they, and so in 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 that world, the distribution that you measure, like if you give it more time, there's going to be more stuff in the extreme values. Yes. Uh, just because, like, there's nothing actually preventing that from happening. Um, yeah. So, like, there's a, you know, an example of this is, like, if you take, like, a slice of time and look at the inequality of any measurement, like, it will look crazy. Yeah. And then it'll look less crazy, like, if you broaden that time. Because yeah. the the tail events will actually pile up and make the distribution look more... Uh, normal and yeah. exposes little it'll have more of a center yeah it, I mean so part of the way that I kind of think about this is is there's a um, so so there's a uh, there there's there's a principle in physics uh, that Richard Feynman defined uh, that basically says uh, anything that is not explicitly prohibited must occur mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, that nature, nature finds a way. Yeah. Well, it, and 
and I mean, he, he, he was actually elucidating something really deep, uh, which is basically that when you design an experiment and, uh, and, and you don't see something, Mm-hmm. that your laws of nature that you've laid out don't uh, like don't explicitly prohibit like that tells you that your laws of nature are wrong so so uh, um, this has shown up essentially in 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 like uh, or, or at least when I was doing this years ago uh, in high energy uh, uh, high, high high energy astrophysics that there was a you know, basically, like uh, the uh, uh, the energy spectra when they would measure the energy of, of these particles coming in. You know, they'd launch these satellites and and basically just just be uh, and and the function of these satellites was just to measure the energy of of, of these astrophysical uh, particles mm-hmm. uh, that that were that were you know are just like flying all over space, uh, and they would cut off. At a certain point, um, and so, uh, and there was nothing in the laws that said like that cutoff should be there. Right. So then you go looking for the answer, and it turns out to be like there's something about your instrument or about the laws. Yeah, are... yeah. So like it basically tells you like if you are not seeing something that your laws say that your laws don't explicitly say like this shouldn't be there, mm-hmm. then then you know you've got something wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and that's also kind of where like scaleless phenomenon show up, uh, where, you know, essentially, uh, if there's nothing that tells you that this cannot vary across multiple orders of magnitude, mm-hmm. then either you should see it varying across multiple orders of magnitude or the way that you're thinking about your problem is not correct. Okay. That makes sense. Uh, it, was, it, anyway. it was a long, long climb, but we got there. Anyway, that's why <laughs> that's why I like power laws, uh, because like that's it, they're one of the simplest uh, scaleless distributions. We'll, uh, we'll link to a we'll, we can link to a lot of there's a lot of work on the early Internet was just almost all arguing about power laws. Yeah, like, the late 90s Internet was all that. There's some really good stuff in white, like with blue hyperlink. Yeah, uh, HTML still yeah. out on the internet. Well, so. I mean, and it turns out that like a lot of companies made a lot of money off of power laws. Yeah, uh, at that time. Um, I think the we'll, we'll probably talk a little bit about Stephen Wolfram later in this in this uh, thing, but his his like magnum opus had a lot on uh, power. Yeah, yeah, power yeah, they, he had a ton in there. Yeah. All right. So, oh, and then before I go back to the rest of Mike's email. Um, we got some feedback that people were just confused a little bit about our discussion about Stata and Economist. So let me clarify some things. Stata is a proprietary software. It is neither cheap nor widely used outside of academia and especially not outside of like academic economists. Um, so it's something that a pro- like an employer would have to pay for. And it, it has a GUI on it, but most of the economists that I know, the ones that are good at stats, when they, they, they use like a syntax file yeah. to do it. Yeah, so, so let's step back for a second before we run into the rest of this, of this email cause, because mm-hmm. it's kind of relevant. Mm-hmm. Um, we may have never talked about like kind of the, the software that analytical people use. <laughs> uh, in general, because 
Stata is one example. It's, mm -hmm. it's commonly used in the econ field, but nowhere else. Right. Uh, there are others that, that like other fields use. So like, you know, roughly speaking, what it's supposed to do is, uh, is, is you get to declare like, this is the model that I want to fit. And here's the data that I have to fit it with. And then it handles all of the numerical number crunching underneath, and you don't have to worry about that. Right. And so in that uh, sense, it's not like it's not that different from like a series of libraries, well instantiated libraries from in, yeah. in R or Python. There are other ones like we mentioned SPSS as yeah, one that yeah, so I learned as working for psychologists, and SAS is probably the most yeah, SAS, common one and the most expensive. Yeah, SAS SAS is one of the largest providers uh, of the of this sort of software. And that's SAS, not SAAS. Yeah, um, yeah. the 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 idea being that, like, kind of like you know, call it thirty years ago when this stuff first started coming out. Uh, if you wanted to to like run a model fit, you basically had to write your own optimization algorithm and see, or like know how to do that, uh, or even worse, like you had to write your own optimization algorithm in Fortran, or just do it by hand, uh, or 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 do it by hand, which kind of limited the calculations that that you could run or the number of variables that 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 that, that you could put into your model, uh, and so. So people started writing these kind of higher higher level uh, uh, these higher level pseudo languages that would wrap these like very deep numerical optimization uh, uh, kind of packages. And I would I would call them programs rather than languages. Yeah. Because yeah, like SPSS being an example is like the language you use on that is nothing more than string replacement. Yeah on a declarative language that yeah. tells SPSS the program what to do. Yeah. And the language like the language that it's actually using underneath the hood bears very little yeah. like very little resemblance to the to the scripting thing you use in order to like make macros and do um, program like to do a program in, in SPSS as yeah. a, someone who's operating it. Yeah. So like roughly speaking the way that you can think about these things is, is like historically like you know, you needed really, really deep computer science expertise to be able to like build models on a computer. People realize like, oh, there's an opportunity if, if you can wrap this with, with something easier to use, uh, which is where uh, this software came from. Uh, so, so, so then you had, so then came software like Stata, SPSS, SAS, uh, MATLAB, Mathematica, uh, and, and, and all of them do something like a like just a little bit different. Like like uh, like MATLAB uh, is really optimized for uh, the kinds of calculations that uh, that someone that someone designing a like engineered system might have to do. So like matrix multiplication, uh, for instance. Um, but but although now they have packages to do all all kinds of all all kinds of modeling like that wasn't what it was built for but it, but like uh, all of these pieces of software or most of these pieces of software have like kind of converged to the same place um, and then and then essentially in in subsequent years people like the open source movement took hold 
Uh, and then that's when software like R and Python started to become available and the tooling for that became better. Um, and that's kind of where, uh, so, so it took a long time for, uh, for those ecosystems to get to a place where they were generally accepted by, by, the, by the communities. Uh, and like now we're at a place where like the maturity of those, of those like two forms of software, the like open source and the proprietary uh, are, are very similar in terms of like the kind of functionality that, that they offer and how easy they are to use. And, and, uh, and to a certain extent, one, one could argue even that the, that the ecosystem around the open source side is, is significantly larger uh, at this point than, than, than the proprietary side. Yeah, I think um, it's, it's hard to argue. I think it's hard to argue at this point that the proprietary side has better infrastructure software like there are definitely know, still people out there who will argue that I, I, <laughs> but i'm not sure i agree with them i think that it's definitely similar like yeah. they're definitely in the same class and i think like our studio is like a reasonable gui yeah. um like it, it does the thing that i want it to do which is like i press a button and it can import my data yeah I think that's the only thing where i really want a like a button to press fair fair enough but um and python it's hard and harder to come up with like a, a if you need a gui like that there there's something that's out there to do that for you yeah and i know a lot of folks who 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 like uh pycharm for that it's it's more of an ide yeah than a than a gui but i just started using pycharm a couple of weeks ago yeah um, do you like it i do i do like it uh it, it needs to be a little better at understanding when i'm like what happens like it has a thing where you can connect it to a database, yeah, and then it'll theoretically uh, identify objects within that database and use that to intelligently code ahead, like help you out on your code. Mm -hmm. Not great, like the, <laughs> okay, the, like all right. So, so like interesting, but not advisable. It's it's like I mean, I turn it on, it doesn't hurt, but yeah. it just doesn't work that well, right? And I was like, you know, this is disappointing to have this option on here, which had so much promise, but like actually doesn't work that well. Fair enough. Um, but in another, you know, like people who are good at PyCharm seem to like get around, like move pretty quickly through a lot of problems. So I'm going to invest a little more in that. Yeah. There's a little bit of a generational thing here where like I'm a, I'm a gen, I'm the last of Gen X and I learned Stata in school and R was just barely starting to become a thing that was being used across disciplines. Mm -hmm. um, and the generation before me, like people who are older Gen Xers and people who are uh, baby boomer, boomers in uh, in econ, definitely basically only know Stata unless they're like unless they are purposefully like going out and learning new things. Are you are you Gen X or are you Xennial? I'm nineteen seventy nine. Okay. So I am like it depends. There are different definitions and it, it very very. Like the, the one of the ones that I was the most familiar with has me as the last the last year where you're technically Gen X. There's other definitions that put that as one of the oldest millennials. Eh. Yeah. <laughs> but I think it, it correctly identifies in a, like a time when you 
grew up and you had the internet, but you probably wasn't, it wasn't ubiquitous. Yeah. Right. Um, and social media wasn't yet a thing when I was a teenager. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I've heard, so I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm 1980. Uh, and so like, I've heard like 77 to 83 as like, you know, it's like a weird bridge mm-hmm. time because like you kind of, like you grew up when you were when like you were young, you had like, you know, like technology was kind of around, but like you came of age during during that like that like internet period. I'm I mean I remember first getting email and being like this is magic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Going going to school and getting like going away to college and living in a dorm and having like the first internet connection that actually really yeah. worked was like a, a big deal in my life um and that would have i would have been like 19 yeah. when that happened this puts like what we were talking about in focus where there's kind of like the academia works where like the older people teach the younger people yeah and like there's still kind of a lot of older professors in uh in econ that are teaching the thing that they know which is data yeah um and it looks to me like that's not changing over as fast as i would predict for a field that um thinks of itself as like oh after physics we're like the best at like adapting ourselves to math and technical things um so mike writes in uh that you know, he wants to say that, like, um, economists are very far from junior data scientists and coding skills, um, and the barrier to adoption uh, for new tech is high for them. And this is where I, you know, I'll, I'll answer back a little bit. Like, my my intuition is that actually, like, the technical ability needed to master data is, as taught isn't that different from R, but, like, that's where I, I definitely admit that I could be wrong. Yeah, see, I I read this at least a little bit as uh, as as the people who as like referring to the people who already know one versus the other, because like I I I could buy the argument that like if you have someone who's been using Stata for fifteen years, that for them to learn a new thing and to like learn to teach that new thing. <laughs> Like the barrier to that is quite high. I don't buy the argument that like someone who's a uh, a freshman or a sophomore, like kind of coming into these classes, that the barrier that that like there's a difference between the two. Like it's just something that you have to learn, and a person coming in at that point in their in their development like really should be focused on the return on investment piece. Yeah, so I, I agree with that. Like if you, there's an opportunity cost in switching over to something new if you already know this other thing. Yeah. And it doesn't matter whether the uh, the new thing is as easy to learn as the old thing, like it still requires time for you to go up that skill curve. Yeah. And, I, and it, like Mike also frames this as like he's, this is positive, not normative uh, things that he's giving giving us. Can you explain that? So that means he's like he's not saying that he's not necessarily saying he agrees with the the outcome that the econ departments have uh, have landed at, but he's sedating the things that are barriers to like a better outcome. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, positive means uh, statements about the world. Normatives is like telling the world what it should do. Um, the you know the thing the other econ thing jargon. yeah it's econ or philosophy 
Mm -hmm. um, the the implementation of economics is in papers. You don't build stuff, so having a good programming language isn't necessarily all that um, isn't all that useful. See, I I, I disagree with that comment. Uh, like like I I I'd buy the argument that you're not building stuff and the implementation aren't papers, but like if you want your results to be reproducible, you need something that. People, you know, basically, people need to be able to take your data and your code and be able to run it. Yeah, and knowing Mike, I would guess that this is one the the bullet he was most thinking of when he said this is positive versus normative. Yeah, um, meaning that like the state of reproducibility in analyses that you should be able to reproduce, meaning they're from publicly available data in econ, is really bad. Yeah. And we didn't. We it wasn't that long ago that we had the like transposed Excel cell uh, error yeah, yeah. as a major driver of like public, like a thing that had influence on public policy. So that like I I, I agree that like if you're going to reproduce it once, you sort of are building something. But that's not the currency with which academic careers are built, mm -hmm. unfortunately. Um, and his last his last bullet is. A little snarky. I heard on this podcast that you should do what your friends do. Um, in most economics departments, sticking this data is consistent with that advice. <laughs> Mike, coming in hard. <laughs> coming in hard on us, huh? Um, yeah, so again, like I think it is, my response is like it is perfectly rational for any uh, given teacher to stick with data, any given economist to learn data. I do think that that's still like what they would call a second best solution. Meaning that it's it's optimizing around a a the world as we know it, and it is not moving towards like the optimal outcome. Yeah, and I don't think like the local, optimal local maxima. Yeah, essentially. yeah. Uh, the optimal like, and I don't think the, the the annoying part to me is still that like I think the optimal outcome is pretty achievable. What it would require is faculty members who teach econometrics, who generally are like the more more technical and more savvy of their colleagues. To go and say, well, I'm going to make this concerted effort to move into R, which to me is still like it's not, and I would choose R over Python, but like that's not that's I wouldn't care about the difference between the two. Yeah, it's that's, still that's more kind of academic. <laughs> it's still more of an analysis language than a building yeah. language, which is consistent for like economics as a rhetorical science rather than a, an engineering science. They've built up all this human capital and data, and they don't want to they don't want to sacrifice their human capital for the sake of their students. The other thing I want to I want to bring up, like I want to explicitly call out, is like I have this model in my head that I'm using here, which is generally accepted in 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 economics, where you have general human capital and specific human capital. And general human capital is stuff that applies uh, across firms or across industries, depending on the subject that you're talking about. So it's like your you know your general math ability, your general ability to communicate and collaborate. You know, specific human capital, which is stuff that only really works within a firm or an industry, depending on the context. Yeah, it's like knowledge of HR regulations. Right. So how does this, com like, what does this term mean in this particular company? Yeah. So in theory of human capital is really essential to lots of different parts of um, econ. And this particular theory drives a prediction, which is, employers will love to pay, will pay for lots and lots of 
training that leads to specific human firm specific human capital. They will love to pay you to do stuff that like increases your productivity at their particular company. They will be less uh, into paying for um, improvements to general human capital, which is stuff that could be applied at this company or other companies because it just increases the probability that you will leave and they will have paid for something that they will not get any returns on. Um, this prediction, like I don't, I haven't seen like a ton of like uh, empirical verification of it. Um, I'm gonna guess it probably is less predictive than you'd like, but it's definitely. Um, I mean, it, it it also says that the sort of like general human capital should be. Yeah, you will get paid. You will get paid more from having more general human capital. Yeah, and you will get paid less for your specific human capital. Yeah. And the academy should be a place where you're trying to develop general yeah. human capital, and instead you find the econ department behaving like a private firm. Yeah. So I think in the hands of, the, like, it's definitely, like, it's probably a market failure when your employer won't pay for you to learn open source software, um, which is definitely more of a form of general human capital than uh, learning Stata. Um, it's definitely a government failure when you're, your PhD program is forcing you onto proprietary software. Yeah, like kind of the way that I see it is, is like I I would not like I I agree that it is a rational decision for for these departments to use Stata, right? Like it's perfectly rational if you have someone who's been doing high level research for you know five, ten, fifteen, twenty years with Stata being very successful at it, that's the best tool they know, like, it is definitely a rational decision for them to keep using it. The place where I, where, like, I quibble, and, like, to be frank, it, it almost kind of, like, makes me a little bit upset, <laughs> uh, is that it's not a good decision. <laughs> uh, and, like, the reason that it's not a good decision is is basically because... So there, there's the thing that you're going to do, but then there's like what you're imposing on everybody else. Right. So you're saying it's a rational private decision with suboptimal public consequences. Yeah. Ergo, market yeah. failure. Yeah. And like you could, it, 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 it would be perfectly reasonable for you to say, okay, like for my high level research, I'm going to use the stuff that I know. But when I teach these classes, like part of the goal of like going to college for most people, not everybody... But for most people is to go and get a good job afterwards. So, like, you've got to be leaving them with skills that are useful. Like, Stata, like, knowing how to use Stata is not a useful skill in the commercial world. It's, it's not as useful as, as R, I would say. Again, like, you can get jobs and do jobs with Stata. If you're doing, if you're doing like, uh, litigation, you might have to to do it in Stata in certain areas? So, um, so it, it, it's, it's not that you can't get a job. It's that it, it's a shrinking surface area. Yes. There are not right? as many jobs that, yeah. are, that would well, be happy. And less and less over time, right? So, like, you need to be pointing your students at, at, at growth spaces. Like, most of the jobs that at one point would have required Stata or SAS like are moving towards towards these open source systems. Right. So I'll I'll answer back for Mike a little bit on this one because I kind of know where he would he would go. Which is to say like in the PhD program 
that may not be true, right? Like it—it's it, not necessarily true that like mm -hmm. that econ, you know, the point of an econ PhD is to turn into an econ professor. Um, the that's up for debate. I don't know the counterpoint. You can't. I mean, like Mike would be a good counterexample, exactly. right? <laughs> um, he's a he's a PhD student that is a data scientist and uses no data. Um, the it's probably about fifty fifty, I would guess, or close to it in terms of like, do econ PhDs turn into professors or do they turn into data scientists or or, uh, high -level or like analysts. analysts of some sort? Yeah, and. At the like, I think at the undergrad level is where, it, like, to me, where it is yeah, like there, there it is, is sheer like, malpractice. The answer is clear. Sheer malpractice. Yeah. Like to to be using any. I I learned something that was even less useful than SPSS as an undergrad. I learned something called Shazam, which oh, I've never wow. even seen. Never even seen any like anyone use at I, any point I, after, I, since then. I only know Shazam as like that app that you would play that you yeah, turn no, on when was, like a song was I, playing. I hope that they at least <laughs> sued the music app for taking their name i see <laughs> um like to me that is and i you know i learned it from a very technical economist who was really good at software it's just like he like yeah. that drove his idiosyncratic like software choices as well um so that you know that that's pretty much all the, that we've got on that although we like i think we we can use this to bounce into a further discussion of proprietary software um yeah. but thank thanks again for writing in mike we appreciate your feedback, and we especially appreciate the severe dunking on that you handed us. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we're going to talk a little bit about this Paul Romer article that I'll link to in the show notes, and yeah. I'll I'll give a little background on who Paul Romer is. Yeah. So so where this is coming from is it was a big week last week for Paul Romer. <laughs> Uh, what, did he win the Did he win the Nobel? He won the Nobel. I That's, didn't realize that, yeah, that, was, that was that was that was why I sent it over to you. I you can like, tell oh. I don't keep up with 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 uh, academic nonsense that much. Well, I I mean I don't typically either. Um, uh, I noticed this. So so so, at, as it happens, I'm a physicist who has econ envy. Uh, I know that there's a lot written about about the opposite. We know the truth. Though. Yeah. Uh, but like I, I love economics uh, as a as a uh, uh, kind of as a as a field of study because I think like it, at least in today's world they have they're working on some of the most interesting problems uh, and so like I, I keep up sort of with what's going on in that world that uh, I'll be honest like the jargon drives me crazy uh, because I I don't understand a lot of the words it's a, it's okay <laughs> that they use um and, and and also like as a physicist i also have an allergy to jargon because physics is so jargon heavy and i hated that too but but i love the field uh and so so when i saw that he won the nobel prize i shot it over to over to otis yeah the uh the jargon i'm corrupted by the jargon i have there are concept concepts that i have a hard time thinking of what i would call them in english but work well in in, in economic speak so Rome, yeah. romer's a, like he's definitely a good choice for um a nobel prize in that like he worked on important problems his work is pretty easy to grasp what it's telling you um once you get through the jargon yeah, I mean, I find it. I I find it. I didn't go like he worked on growth and macro stuff, where yeah. it's just not like a field that I developed a lot of depth yeah. in. 
Yeah. So 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 just to read the the specific statement, he he won for. Uh, endogenous growth theory. All right. So endogen endogenous is like I, I one would be forgiven if thinking that that's like one of the five words that economists know because you <laughs> run into it a lot. Um, so you have growth theory, which started out as a like you have these equations that set your nation's growth, um, and then they were something like the savings rate and uh, the rate of technical change, and then when you asked economists like, well, what what changes those the answer was like (laughs) Um, so it's not like actually a great name because um it's just like the reason why it's endogenous is because the you're using a model to fully solve itself and the only reason why you're calling it endogenous is just because the original set of equations were just kind of set they were kind of hard-coded Right. And just like, ah, like this thing yeah. gets set and this other thing gets set. So now. Yeah. So my my understanding is that like previous to him, they basically just said, well, these are numbers you put into the equation as opposed to things you can say where they came from. The the most annoying thing about the growth theory before him is when you said, well, what causes growth? They would say like technical change. Yeah. And then you look into what technical what causes, change was. Yeah. Technical change was effectively the error term yeah. in a measurement, right? Yeah. It was like everything else that we don't know yeah. was the was this. Um, so that's that's that wasn't a great state yeah. to have things in. He, you know, he left it in a more scientific and sound feeling place. And his answers were intuitive too. They were like like effectively like investment in education is a big driver of growth wow that's amazing (laughs) um there's still a lot of like controversy about like what actual propagation mechanisms um go into play around that yeah so 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 the way that i kind of interpreted this in english and i could be completely wrong but like it kind of made sense to me was essentially like his core idea was that people (laughs) make growth happen by having new ideas. That's pretty that's pretty close to it. Yeah. yeah. And so essentially the thing that you would like to do as a society then is invest in people's ability to have more new ideas mm-hmm. so that you can get growth. There's um and again like there like the propagation mechanism is still yeah. I would say kind of up for debate like so i highly recommend that as as reading uh the the reason why i think this is important is because we're gonna we're gonna talk about proprietary versus open source software some more and you might wonder like what what is paul romer doing here right like how did he end up in the middle of this debate yeah and i i think the centrality of human capital to his macro long-run growth models has made him a person who like thinks about the theory of human capital as much as any labor economist, which is where I came into yeah. Like, I liked labor economics a lot, and that's where I ended into, like, my familiarity with what human capital theory is. Yeah. Well, and, like, if you're going to buy the idea that new ideas generate growth, then, like, presumably new ideas also generate more new ideas. And so, like, you want some way for that feedback loop to go. Just just before we get stupor into it, like, one of the biggest objections to his endogenous growth theory as uh, as an empiric is that actually, like, nations tend to converge more 
than you would guess, given that new ideas do obviously generate new ideas. Can you can you say more about that? So China is like like growing at a higher rate than the United States, and eventually it will like converge on the United States' overall income mm-hmm. level, but it will slow down in that growth rate before as it approaches that income level. The which is all like all makes perfectly reasonable sense from like the standard like viewing. Uh, like people as input-output functions version of economics. Mm-hmm. But through Romer's, Romer's lens, you would actually expect that that may not be the case, that like since the United States has got all of these idea-generating institutions, that it's generated an advantage in generating more ideas and that the growth rates would stay kind of high forever. Mm-hmm. Um, I Obviously, that like that's just a critique like the... Um, the details matter on this and like Romer's not like obviously endorsing the like increasing returns to human capital go on forever, forever for everybody. But yeah. it is like a thing that gives you a little pause. About yeah. the well, well, this kind of goes back to one of the things that we were talking about very, very early on in this episode around like, uh, around like scaleless phenomenon. Yeah. And is your phenomenon actually scaleless? So, so generally, if you see convergence towards something and your theory doesn't predict that, <clears throat> uh, you're probably missing something. Right. Well, in this case, he's like, he's got all he needs. Like, yeah. the theory, like, with his contributions, you've got all you need. Yeah. Then you argue over the coefficients. And the coefficients made the difference between something that has increasing returns to scale and decreasing returns yeah. to scale. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I would say, like, the hard part of a theory like his is probably somewhere around, like, measuring idea generation and, like, what is actually an idea versus, like, what's a little tweak that doesn't really count. Yes. No, human capital is fraught, like, in yeah. terms of, like, measuring it because it's not obvious that it, like, it's stable from time period to time period. Some of the measurements of human capital yeah. are clearly hilariously biased in favor of the civilizations that we view as high human capital and yeah. like we don't like that there's a lot of things yeah. that need to go into it well and, and and so one of the interesting things at least from 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 my perspective as like a dilettante in this uh is so just to be clear i'm also a dilettante. <laughs> um the i mean the venture capital industry is essentially built around this idea right of like oh well like like more ideas equals more companies equals like eventually you will you will generate outsized returns. Uh, you know, speaking to your point about things being missing, uh, if you uh, uh, there was there was an article written about this. I can't remember where I saw it exactly, but the number of outlier companies generated has essentially been fixed over time. Like no matter, and so so you would think if he was totally correct that the number of unicorns and super unicorns would be increasing over time, right? As like, uh, uh, or or at the very least would be attached to would would be a function of the number of firms that were started, right? And, uh, and just that, just to be clear here, we're like talking about like. Uh, we're not trying to attribute opinions to Paul yeah. Romer. We're trying to make naive predictions about like a straw man. Yeah, theory. it's like how do you how do you reason about the world? Yeah, um, and uh, and and that uh, those 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 outcomes at least thus far have been fixed, 
so they they have not been shown to have any dependence on 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 essentially the 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 number of new companies started over time mm -hmm. uh you know it's it it's uh roughly speaking there there have been somewhere between uh one and three super unicorns generated per decade uh there have there have been uh somewhere between uh one and three billion dollar companies generated per year uh, and that doesn't appear to have any dependence on the number of seed stage uh, yeah. companies that are around. So there's clearly like, I mean, this is one of the reasons why I find this field fascinating, uh, because like it, it has practical implications for my life. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, uh, that's that's a bit of a, of a digression. Right. So uh, there's an article that um, that Romer wrote from his blog about, I would say, back in April. Um, and it's in response to an Atlantic Monthly uh, uh, article about um, with about scientific publication, which, by the way, if I if I ever make enough money that I don't need to work anymore, mm -hmm. I'd either love to do like a software around science, like improving scientific like publication yeah, I, or I, what is something like Dave, Dave Guerrero is doing where, you know, we actually make the benefits that people can have through the state accessible to them. <laughs> um, uh, but anyway, so Romer, Romer is uh, basically, he wrote an article that tracked his conversion from using um, Wolfram's Mathematica notebooks to do his, uh, his investigations to over to Python and Jupyter notebooks. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm not sure, actually, if he uses Python or R. Uh, I think he but, uses Python. Yeah. Uh, he, he specifically calls out Python as, and using yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, those so, libraries. Yeah, so, I mean, Jupyter can support both. Yeah, it uh, can. It didn't. It started with yeah. Python was the first yeah, thing yeah, of it. Yeah, so I, I still feel like it has more of a Python bias than, a, than an R. I would agree with that, yeah. You know, he kind of goes over his personal experience um, with the with the company that um, makes the mathematical uh, notebook, um, including some like unflattering things about Stephen Wolfram, which let's face it, everyone who's had an interaction with Stephen Wolfram or maybe even read a couple of paragraphs of text by him has got some unflattering perceptions of him. He, he says that you know in the '90s it was clear like you should be using this proprietary software. Yeah. Um, and there's like a big technical gap between what you could do with that and what you couldn't. Yeah. And then by the time, you know, 2015 rolls around, he is saying that there's not a big technical gap in between them. And in fact, some of the gap are put there on purpose, right? So they're not likely to go away, yeah. right? Like they're specifically there to prevent him from publish, like using the PDF software like uh to to his advantage yeah he was he was referencing the ability to export things mm -hmm. in ways that other people could see so like one of the things you might want to do if you're using a proprietary piece of software is export uh is export the analysis that you just created into a document format that everybody can read right which i would call the point of a notebook like that's the like when you want a notebook yeah the proper use of notebook is I have a narrative and I want to embed yeah. code in it, not I want to write code and then write a narrative around it. Yeah. So um, and and so there are some pieces of software that will that will uh, force you or or default you into exporting into a proprietary format 
that uh, they're trying to make win. Yeah, well, and, and, it, and like one of the things that they'll tend to do is they'll say, okay, well, uh, you can export into this format and the reader for it is free. Mm -hmm. Right, so all your user has to do is go and download this reader, yeah. uh, and and so like they're they're essentially trying to generate more more lock in, which is kind of the antithesis of what open source software does. Right, and and Romer is a scientist, yeah. right? So like this is less of a problem in a company, I yeah. think, where you're supposed to pay for software. You're like your primary output is, you know. The, your work outputs, yeah. but like he's trying to say, like he's trying to make something as accessible and ungated as possible. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, he's he's essentially making the argument here that you know back back in the nineteen nineties, the thing that mattered was what the software could do, uh, and there was a very very big gap between what was available open source or free versus versus like uh, versus like what was available on the on the proprietary side and i think like you and i coming through school at about the same time like like you could sort of see this i mean i i i remember uh using uh using matlab versus octave which oh, was God. like the open source version of matlab and like they were you know back in the late 90s like they were not comparable <laughs> early 2000s like like they just were not octave was slower it didn't have as much functionality, uh, and so like you had to believe, like like essentially you had to be religious about the open source ethos to like want to use that stuff. Mm -hmm. But now like basically everything is the same, and so the basis of competition has shifted. It's it's no longer about like well what can I technically do with this thing, it's uh, like the 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 dimension along which you are now evaluating a piece of software is different. Right. So so if you're if you're building software, it might be something like that, like how easy is this to deploy? How good are the web frameworks? Like how how how, how you see my code? Yeah. And how how easy is it for me to, to like do the stuff that uh, to to like actually like build the application that I want to build? And on the analysis side, like for the most part, it's it's how easy is this to share so that somebody else can can replicate my work and decide if they agree with yeah, it or what's not. Yeah, what's the, what, like, is it going to get to the right audience? Which mostly resolves to a question of, like, what's the biggest audience that you can, yeah. that you can get out of it? Yeah, it, the, um, I really love the, the ending of the article, which is where he's talking about, like, each of them have their drawbacks, but, like, it's pretty much a draw technically. Mm -hmm. But the tiebreaker is social, not technical. The more I learn about the open source community, the more I trust its members, and the more I learn about this. And he says, proprietary software, the more I worry about the obje that objective truth might perish from the earth. I think that's a yeah, little far. That, that, that feels a little far for me. But I get what he's saying. Yeah. He's saying that like the, the flaws in Mathematica are mostly there right now on purpose to drive a strategic <laughs> advantage. And the flaws in, in IPython and Jupyter Notebooks are there because like the the open source community hasn't gotten to them yet yeah um, and that's that so he would bet on that improving better than um, than uh, pro the proprietary software equivalent I don't know that I carry the generalization out yeah. there like octave is a good ex example to bring up as something that didn't really well evolve past what 
like the proprietary version so, was? So I, I like in terms of like a, a piece of software that is mimicking a proprietary one. Yes, you're you're correct. But it turned out that like that is not the right paradigm for open source, right? And uh, like R and Python ended up developing equivalent functionality to MATLAB in a different way and are now just further ahead. Like my, my experience with this was that, well, it, uh, like there's plenty of pieces of, 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 of uh, proprietary software that, that do have portability built into them. Mm -hmm. uh, I think MATLAB is, is a decent example of this because like you can actually compile your code and send it over to someone else and they can run it natively like it it, it it had a lot of nice portability features built in it, it didn't do that thing that he's referencing around Mathematica uh, yeah the the issue that I ran into with the proprietary software uh, was really that once the open source communities started growing uh, their rate of development was just a lot higher and so even though they started off behind Eventually, like there were so many people working on these pieces of software and the and various libraries attached to them that the proprietary folks who were limited by the number of engineers that they could employ uh, just couldn't keep up. And I I sort of saw saw this happening about about ten years ago, which is which is the reason I I swapped over uh, from from uh, from MATLAB uh, to R at the time. So I was basically like, well, R is already better across a couple of dimensions, and there's just way more people working on this than there are working on MATLAB. So like, I could definitely see a future where like this piece of software is way better than that one, just because like MATLAB is is literally limited by the number of engineers that they could hire, and R is not. Yeah, and I. I think that that's like a that's a good barometer. I don't. I wonder how many times we can know how many people are working on a particular piece of open source software, but that's it's useful. Like it's a useful like equation. So we've already given you one equation, which is just like your future earnings are a function of your general human capital. Yeah. And the the open source software is free to your employer, right? <laughs> so that one that one's an like an obvious like one where you should move in that direction. My like when I first started out in in software, like I had a massive bias towards open source software, and I feel like I haven't really checked on that belief lately. I know that like um, you know there's been some backlash about open source. Um, some of it is more about like the e ephemera of it, where it's like people were using your open source contributions as like uh, a like measurement of your uh, productivity when you look at your resume. Um, yeah, which is definitely not a fair assessment. Right, and then just like the open source community, like you know, people don't really like Linus Thorvalds that much because he's kind of a jerk, and that really making sure that the people contributing to the software, open source software, are like behaving in nice and pleasant ways for sure. Mm -hmm. And then there's just the whole model is like that you're doing you're doing free software development in your spare time. Which I can vouch for both of neither of us are doing much of that. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. So it's, I mean my my guess is like it, it in terms of value generation and companies like there is quite likely a happy medium that hasn't really been reached yet, which is like 
some combination of like proprietary of like proprietary interfaces and kernels but that have a clean interface to uh, to open source pieces because like you can't necessarily expect that everything valuable is going to get built in in the open source context and I don't know that like the business models have been like fully fleshed out yet in terms of like how people are compensated for for building all all of these tools. I mean, my, my guess is that they get compensated in reputation points, valuable okay. to the open source community, and sometimes those are valuable I mean, to those, the... those can transfer. Yeah, uh, but and but... then the question becomes like, and that, that leads you back into the like, should you be looking at some like saying saying to someone, no, oh, you haven't had, you don't have enough open source, yeah, like, uh, you know, bonus points to get this job. Um, yeah. So so I mean, basically, you know, I I think if you uh, if you look at something uh, uh, like like anything that an established enterprise would use, there's like a bunch of features that will almost never get built into into open source, right? right. Things like access controls and auditing capabilities uh, and like just stuff you have to have to essentially like know who who is doing what on your on your systems. Like that's probably software you end up paying for. Uh, and and I mean, you know, if you're working in an enterprise, like you will pay for certain features because you need them. Mm -hmm. uh, and frankly, in many cases, you will even be more comfortable paying for certain features because you want somebody else to be holding some liability so that they give you stuff that's useful. It's rare that it's like literally the feature that you're paying for, I would say, in, a, in an enterprise context. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, you know, I would say like if I think about this as, as like a career heuristic, like you generally want to be using tools that the broader community is is using so like the more people using something the better off you are because mm -hmm. uh, that essentially also like gives you mobility in your career um, and and like when you're evaluating a tool the, the thing that you want to look at is like what is the uh, and, and to me this is one of the other takeaways of, of this article is like what is the feature that that defines uh, you know the the value proposition of the tool itself, right? So like where is the basis of competition in terms of the various products that you're gonna look at? Uh, and and like and like pick pick the one that is best across the feature that is most important to you. In today's day and age, it, this isn't for sure, but I would say like it is unlikely that 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 that, that feature is is what are the technical capabilities of this piece of software? Yeah, it's probably something else. <laughs> that's that's a I think that that's a key insight. Hopefully, what you've gotten out of this is there's like a theoretical underpinning to a lot of the stuff we've talked about in, in terms of technology, and I think maybe today we, we've probably made it a clearer what that is. And that is like the more other people are using the skills and software that you're that you're using, the better off you are. When you're working for companies that allow you to use open source stuff, that allow you to use cheap tools and get better at them, those companies are treating you like an equal and a partner. Mm -hmm. When you're working for companies that force you to use proprietary software and try to make you use custom languages that aren't widely used, those companies are treating you like a surf.
Um, and, you know, like to me, I've always thought like the difference between, you can tell the difference between a good boss and a bad boss by how they treat uh, people leaving. And a good boss will be like, can't prevent them from leaving. My network is expanding. Treat this person well and like good things will happen. A bad boss will try to prevent you from leaving. They'll be like, they will treat this as though it is an attack on them. You can see the company's attitude towards uh, their employees through this decision as well. Like, are they are they looking to enhance your general human capital and trying to reap the rewards while you're there, or are they trying to just enhance your firm specific human capital and make it actually harder for you to like achieve your career objectives? Yeah. So TLDR, if you're choosing between two jobs, one of which uses proprietary tools and the other of which uses open source tools. Pick the open source one. Pick the open source one because you're picking you're picking the good boss rather than the bad boss. Yeah. I think that's all the time we've got for today. Yep. It was fun talking about this. Yeah, this was uh this was a good one. Yeah. Uh, thanks again to Mike for the feedback and kind of giving us the inspiration for the, all of this content. Um, if you want to send us more feedback, um, again, the feed.back at smalldiffcast.com, or you can catch us on Twitter at of differences. Yeah. Um, I'm Old Jacket, at Old Jacket on Twitter. And at Ian Blue One on Twitter. All right. Thanks for joining us.